Thank you, Keith. I thought you'd be out in the middle of a soccer field somewhere. <laughs> Looks like you made it home at least. Yeah, yeah. He he didn't stay for the second game because he's way behind on homework. So, oh, okay. All right. Well. So tonight uh, we pick up uh, with Radical Dharma and uh, the section that's entitled Bringing Our Whole Selves, which uh, I found this to be a, a pretty rich section. But before I, uh, I get started with, with the text, I just wanted to share briefly something from this morning's plane dealer uh, about a different form of, of racism, uh, racism towards the Chinese. There was a piece in uh, the plane dealer this morning about San Jose and, uh, and the burning to the ground uh, that took place there of the largest Chinatown section in, in that city back in 1887. Uh, and I guess we can lose sight of what a large city San Jose is. The article here pointed out it's the 10th largest city in the US. So, uh, but they uh, had just, uh, city council had unanimously approved a resolution to apologize to Chinese immigrants and descendants for the role uh, that, that the city played in, in all of the racist uh, actions uh, culminating in the burning down of, of their uh, community in 1887. It was a pretty horrific racist system that the Chinese people lived in uh, at that time. Uh, there were uh, national acts passed uh, prohibiting further immigration. So a lot of echoes with our day and age that uh, that have been present with us for centuries, many, many, many years. But uh, one of the significant points to this is that, that this was really impactful for the Chinese community there. They, it really was meaningful to them. Uh, so they were uh, going to have a bit of a ceremony kind of uh, uh, in acknowledgement and acceptance of this act of apology, express their gratitude for that kind of being out there with it and rec their recognition that something very terrible had taken place that needed, called for 
uh, an act of apology, an act of regret. So from, from such acts, you know, we can, we can grow, we can learn uh, as, as communities like the one in San Jose uh, make their act of, of contrition heartfelt. It's an opportunity for others to, to also do likewise for the wrongdoings that, uh, that have taken place and still are taking place. So it seems like I don't have to do any kind of in-depth research to find examples like this. They just kind of come to me and I go, well, oh, okay, this is what I'll share with you. It's, it's just uh, endemic to our society to this day. So I'm constantly running into them. I could probably take up an entire 30 minutes or more each week if I wanted to compile uh, a more extensive list of them. But I'll, I'll stop there for this week. So bringing our whole selves. Uh, some, I, I found the, the comments to, to really be dharmically rich, I'll, I'll say in terms of their uh, interweaving the, the radical political side with the Dharma side. Uh, beginning with a comment uh, that, that radical Dharma emerges from a lineage of insurgents that is about bringing our whole self we can't marginalize others or ourselves as part of our pursuit of liberation, whether it be personal or political. And this is actually, I think, uh, coming from, if I'm not mistaken, I thought it was Rod Owens that starts this off. Yeah, any rate, uh, he says, we, we couldn't have arrived here, and I think he's speaking for all three of them, uh, without a fuller and fuller fullness and the deep connection between personal liberation and social transformation is increasingly clear. It's this connection between personal liberation and social transformation that I wanted to, to speak to uh, a bit further here uh, and actually bring in the ethical because the political and the ethical are closely related as is personal liberation and the ethical. It's one of the reasons why precepts, virtuous action is so important for us because personal liberation can take the form of just kind of being, being limited to the personal and the ethical uh, potential of this liberation is lost 
and it it uh, we can see the the challenges of that focus on the individual in our current political realm, because that is at the heart of of the movement that's known as neoliberalism. It's the elevation of the individual, individual rights, Trump, everything else. And it's that that forms the basis for a good society. And Buddhism, obviously the Dharma side of this, I think everybody here is, is, uh, is familiar enough with, with various Dharma teachings that point to the fact that it's our interdependence with all beings that's the root of our ethical, virtuous action that serves as the God. And uh, a very significant contemporary thinker, not a Buddhist that I've referenced before here, Judith Butler, uh, I think it's her most recent book, The Force of Nonviolence. And I'm going to be doing a bit of a deep dive on nonviolence. So I think that's going to trickle its way into Crooked Rivers End Center. And, uh, I thought some of what she's talking about in this uh, uh, chapter, opening chapter, relates and hopefully will help to open up what uh, what radical dharma is talking about in this section. So let me just read a couple of uh, uh, passages from this chapter. Uh, and it also echoes what I was talking about within the past week or two about post-humanism. So this isn't just limited to, to our species. And it's all beings for Judith uh, Butler. She begins by saying the idea of global obligations that serve all inhabitants of the world, human and animal, is about as far from the neoliberal consecration of individualism as it could be. It is regularly, but, but that is regularly dismissed as naive to take this approach of, uh, of encompassing all beings. The naivete is often pointed to in terms of, of it's the individual that, that knows and can act in his or her best interest. And if everybody acts uh, in their own self-interest, everything else works out okay. But, uh, but Butler goes on and brings the notion of equality into this too and how equality is linked into the, the whole rather than the individual. Even though we generally 
see equality as being about individual rights. So she's kind of undermining one of those uh, things that, that's gotten so deeply rooted that a lot of us are prone to, uh, to kind of buying into it. Uh, but Butler says, when equality is understood as an individual right, as it is in the right to equal treatment, then it's separated from the social obligation we, we bear one another. To formulate equality on the basis of the relations that define our enduring social existence, that define us as social living creatures, is to make a social claim a collective claim on society. They're not individual claims. It's a claim on, of the whole. And you know, when, when I read that, I thought, well, that is, that's Buddhism. I mean, it's about the whole. And we don't have these individuals each with their own individual rights, it's a, it's a universal, it's a global right. And that approach, if, if it's racism that we're dealing with, obviously cuts that right out. How can you have racism if it's a global approach? You can't. But you can use individual rights to support racism, basically, in its bluntest form, everybody has a right to be a racist, right? <laughs> and it actually can come out almost that bluntly in the way it gets discussed and enacted. And then finally, uh, more on this matter of equality. Uh, she goes on to say, whatever claims of equality are thus formulated, they emerge from the relations between people in the name of those relations and those bonds, but not as features of an individual subject. So it's the interconnectedness where we find equality. Equality is thus uh, a feature of social relations that depends for its articulation on an increasingly avowed interdependency, letting go of the body as a unit in order to understand one's boundaries as relational and social predicaments, social predicaments. Uh, which she goes on to describe as including, uh, and this relates directly to, to radical dharma, including sources of joy, susceptibility to violence, sensitivity to heat and cold, tentacular as in tentacles, our tentacles, our tentacular yearnings for food, sociality, and sexuality. All of these come from let this letting go of the body as a unit, the skin bag, as we 
would often refer to it in Buddhism. Letting go of the skin bag in order to understand that our boundaries uh, don't end there because they're relational. And all the social predicaments, as he calls them, that, that are part and parcel of those relations. Which means vulnerability, which these three authors talk about a great deal. Vulnerability comes from our interdependence because we're not masters. We're not these substantial beings. There is interdependence. Therefore, there is vulnerability. So all three of the authors, when they speak to that, they're talking about their unique predicaments with this tentacular existence, their tentacles out in their relations with others and how those are, are impacted by the color of their skin, by their sexual orientation, by all the ways that make them unique individuals. It's not to say there, there's no such thing as individuality, but it's, it's this kind of nebulous thing that's so open and vast that we can't really pin it down either. You know, I've mentioned that over the past couple of weeks in, in terms of the, the what are you versus who are you. The who are you is kind of cracking open into that deeper place that can't be fully grasped, held, gotten a hold of. What you are is kind of like a resume. You know, that's, yeah, you, you just throw all that stuff out there. It's kind of definitive in a certain sense, but the who you are is going to the places that where you can't be so defined. And to get to know who somebody is, is a process. It's ongoing, it doesn't end. All this arising out of these notions of like personal liberation and social transformation in the context of radical dharma, which they're talking about in some depth in this section, where there's a sharing of testimonies and, and dialogue on the dharma of sexuality and gender identity and how they entered into their own practices of personal, personal liberation. So this is kind of in that fashion of a con continuation of the previous section that we looked at last week. And uh, Jasmine makes mention of the fact that uh, that she wanted to learn the art of liberation 
in a book. You know, that's a common approach. Or on a cushion in the isolation of her self-reliance. You know, we can see the sitting as, as being personal liberation. But, uh, and, and to see it in that vein, rather than in the messy company of others. So both personal liberation and social transformation have to take place in this messy company of others to be authentic. Otherwise they are, they can't get beyond just being ideas about it. You've either read from a book or you've thought up in your head during meditation. But it's in the messy company of others that kind of like the food processor things start to, <laughs> the interdependence and the interconnectedness becomes real. In fact, sangha, sanghas, I, I've, I've heard uh, compared to like a, a rock tumbler where you have all these individual rocks and the more you, you and with all these rough edges, but as they tumble around, the edges kind of get smoothed out. You start to, you start to have some transformation. <laughs> All of a sudden, uh, the messy company of others becomes at least a little less uh, uh, bruising. And also, you know, she talks about how the ethics of desire, which enters into uh, what, what they're talking about in this section. The ethics of desire could not be attained in the absence of the pressure proximity uh, that, that, uh, that's part of this practice of, of liberation in, in uh, the relationships with others. So it's, it's definitely fully embodied. Our whole selves are brought to it. And Rod Owens talks about uh, uh, his recollection of meeting the Dharma and how it held the trauma of his struggle to love through his sexu sexuality warmly and kindly. Holding the trauma of a struggle to love. Now that's the sort of thing that for practitioners, yeah, that's, that's practice. That's practice because practice really is this, this uh, vessel for holding dukkha. And, and compassion for him 
meant realizing that he was not the only battered one in the world. Kind of relates to what we talk about in terms of insight outside of this kind of context, but where we we speak of insight into self-nature as being the nature of all things. So to see uh, these conditions of dukkha as also being universal is very important for us. And as Rod says, it's at the source of compassion for ourselves and for others. And holding this suffering of self and others, holding it means being present with it, staying with the trouble, as Donna Haraway puts it, another great non-Buddhist, rich in the Dharma. So he, through the Dharma, he was, he came to this realization that, uh, that as he surrendered to his love of radical thought and action, uh, he saw that queerness, radicalism, and Dharma were all acts of remembering himself as wanting to be free in the world. This interconnectedness between radical political thought, sexual orientation, and dharma. Not seeing them as separate silos, that actually it's all very interconnected. That the dharma that you find in one of those buckets also goes through them all. And the openness that our practice brings to us in terms of our ability to open and to be present with self and others, even others that are different from completely different backgrounds to not push them away and also not to cling and attach to those with very similar backgrounds, to be be very comfortable with everything that presents itself. Finding kin in all beings. That's at the heart of compassion, which as all of these authors come back to, it's compassion that's at the heart of political activism. That's the Dharma in radical Dharma. So nonviolence, definitely at the heart of. And it, it flows out of the, the interdependence of all beings.
the fact that it's it's the entirety that informs us at all times, whether we awaken to it or not. But that's what's happening. And he, in his section, he, he concludes by saying, uh, uh, it would be by his will and hands that the world would become home through his practice. So, and I, kind of my, my response to that was uh, that rather than the world would become home, it, it's, it already was home, but it would just start to feel like it. I, I would compare it to like a troubled adolescent who leaves home uh, and return it after some maturity and maybe a bit of transformation. All of a sudden, that experience of home, it begins to feel like, like home, perhaps, whereas before it didn't. But that happens by you know, the, uh, by existing in the messy company of others too. Transfer transformative moments are kind of dependent upon that. An angel talks about how queerness paved the way for her entering the Dharma. Which is kind of like an open question for all of us. Then it's like, well, what paved your way? Opportunity just to, uh, to give some consideration to that. Because there are many ways to the Dharma. And you come, the more you practice and the, the, the more people that you practice with, as people come and go, you come to understand that more and more and more. All these different paths that have led people. And for Angel, she saw queerness as having paved her way because of uh, the way it enabled her to, to let painful truths emerge on her cushion. Because through ch- choosing, ultimately, the acceptance of who she was through choosing queerness. She had already had practice choosing to be free. To not push away or cling to. 
to, to hold, to be with. So she saw that fully accepting herself is an inherently binding agreement of allowing others to be fully themselves. See, we move from the individual to the, to the global. Practicing the Dharma kind of brings that, that, that pivot in our view that, well, what I have just done applies to every, every being. It's not just my liberation. As Dogen would put it, we sit with and for all beings. That's kind of what they're pointing to. And this led her to shift her worldview to one that sees beyond binary truths, the dualistic world we're accustomed to, that are handed to us. And this is, this is a, a nice insight. They're handed to us to yoke ourselves into a system of control. If we enter into the non-dualistic realm, that's liberating. It's hard to control somebody <laughs> once, once they're in that realm. Where, as, as Suzuki Roshi says, there are many possibilities. But if you can limit it to just two, more, the more limitation, the more control. You're either this or that. And choose wisely. <laughs> Don't make the wrong choice. That's how control gets established. So this, this practice of radical Dharma then becomes a practice to be an active, radical acceptance of everyone and all things as they are. And this could be seen perhaps as, as the real root of radicalism is this, this acceptance. And because the acceptance is not uh, you know, a, a uh, how should I say, a confirmation of that if there's something harmful taking place, that we can be focused on the harm and work to address that. But through the acceptance, and this also is a point of linkage with nonviolence, is to not get into the dualistic way of seeing things. To be able to, to be comfortable with complexity and the myriad factors that, 
that impact other people and to see with some understanding how others could get caught up in that. And sometimes, although sometimes it can take much longer than we would like, as in San Jose, but sometimes you know, there is uh, a compassionate resolution, a resolution from this place of love and kindness, feeling the interconnectedness with those that previously had been ostracized and subjected to a great deal of violence and hatred and enmity. So acceptance in Buddhism is not an acceptance that leads to inactivity. Actually, to be engaged in the world requires that we, we uh, have precepts to guide us. But the, the measure of acceptance uh, is, is about understanding. And to be able to be uh, an, a radical Dharma activist without judging. Keeping, and this is where I think Judith Butler's approach uh, is really helpful for me to, to see this more clearly by focusing on the global rather than the individual it prevents us from getting caught up in the judgmental aspects of, of individualism. And then we can start picking who's, who's, uh, who's right, who's wrong. But if our actions are driven by the global, by, for the benefit of all beings, to use that well-known Buddhist ter terminology, uh, then we can take the action without laying blame. We can actually try to help others who are, who are uh, fostering the harm. Not that that's always going to be effective. But, and this is where even within the political realm, you know, there's a huge divide. You know, there are uh, uh, radical uh, political thinkers who, who would advocate violence. And it does become very individualized. Radical Dharma. For the Dharma to be part of that package, that becomes pretty problematic. It's not that you have to be a pacifist to, to be a Dharma practitioner. 
But what it does mean is that if violence is used, boy, it's, uh, <laughs> you really uh, kind of step back and, and, and you look deeply into that. Because it's, it's if, if our focus is on the global, it's kind of like uh, uh, administering a strong dose, dose of poison to a body to, to alleviate it of some disease. Sometimes, you know, but it can, it's pretty, it's not to rule that out completely. But want to stop. It's like people go go for second opinions. Do I want to have a, a pretty uh, uh, challenging course of chemotherapy? What, and fortunately, it's, from what I've read recently, it seems we're, maybe we're starting to, to move to other courses of treatment. But, uh, but at any rate, not to overdraw that comparison, but it it comes down to this matter of if we're focused on, on the whole web of interdependency rather than these individuals, which is where we generally go. It's not to, to ignore the individuals, but it's to see them as part of that web. So it's to see this merging of difference and unity. So with that, I see we're already at nine o'clock and I do want to leave a, 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 at least a moderate amount of time for some discussion here. So I'm going to stop at this point. So, any thoughts you might have? Randy. Yeah. Oops, let me first plug this. Oh. <laughs> Joe, Cynthia, and Keith. Yep. I've got Randy, Paul, and John here. Okay. I, I don't I don't see I, I don't see um acceptance of other people as they are as being any more radical than the Dharma, the Dharma of Buddha. Mm -hmm. And it's nothing, it's, I don't think, that, I think it's fundamental to Buddha. It's not something that is somehow radical any more than the Dharma itself was radical, which it was in its own way, mm -hmm. in its time and place. It was, it was, uh, rather radical so um i would think that anybody practicing the dharma sincerely that would be part of their practice is the ability to accept other people as well i don't think it's something that needs to be introduced because it's already there right. yeah. 
Another thing I noticed uh, as I was reading uh, Rod Owens, mm -hmm. that um, it's interesting the way he presents his ideas because if you contrast him with, say, Angel, who says, This is the way things are, Rod is more likely to say, This is what I think, this is my view, this is the way. It looks to me, mm -hmm. um, which, um, in terms of, of communicating his ideas, I think is a more effective, a more effective way. Because um, yeah, he says, "I think." Or I see that as mm -hmm. my opinion. This is my opinion. This mm -hmm. is my way of viewing. It really struck me how, when I read the introduction to the book, I I, I felt this sense of you know we've got to do something radically to overthrow the white supremacy. Blah 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 blah. And Rod was the one who came around and said, "No, really, this is about me." Mm -hmm. This is about me, mm -hmm. and I mean, I think you made a really good point. And but it, it's 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 a, a point that has always been in my mind an assumption of Buddhism is that the way to change the world is to change the people in the world, not through legislation or through violence or through revolution or through anything like that, but here. Mm -hmm. And that has always been the goal of Buddhism, to, to, to reach inside and help people to reach inside themselves and come to grips with the fact that, I mean, uh, Dogen was the one who says that if you, if you expect nothing, then you'll find a great peace. If you practice and you don't, and you don't try to achieve anything, you find great peace. And so our, our goal in practicing is to learn how to not try to get something out of it, you know, but to allow it to be what it is and allow us to be what we are. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, the, the whole tenor of this, of this book just puts me on edge. I mean, it's like this constant, you, you, you talk about accepting people who they are, and if you have all this talk about white people this and white people that, and whitey and, and uh, you know, what, the mind of whiteness and blah, blah, blah. Well, what's the purpose of that? I mean, how does that, how, how, do, how are you going to, uh, Yama Lepa Tomo said, how are you going to make somebody better by, by humiliating them, by disgracing them? Yeah. Well, that doesn't have to be the the reaction to it, though. So that then becomes something to 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 practice in terms of how do we respond to their openness? So they're being open about based on what they have experienced. And, and if it came across that way, that would be understandable. Mm -hmm. It doesn't to me. Okay. It comes across as it's like I keep waiting for them to say what you want us to do. 
you know? Yeah. It's like attack, 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 attack. It's not, this is how I felt. Well, Rod is a little bit better at that. It's saying, this is how I felt. This is what I thought. This is what I did, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to say angel who, who is always just, you know, in your face, you know, white people this, white people that. This is, this is what they did to me. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. What, what, where do you want to go with that? Yeah. And, and maybe uh, because thanks to Keith, I, I don't investigate too much Dharma online. I know there's a wealth of it out there. But Keith had uh, uh, sometime back sent me a link to uh, a talk that Angel was, was giving. I think it was at, uh, at City Center in San Francisco. And uh, she doesn't come across at all like the the image that you're getting from from the top. Uh, well, they, well, they actually address that in the book. Yeah. When when uh, when Rod said uh, uh, something to the effect of uh, that he was holding back because if he said what was really going on, he said he wouldn't be invited back. <laughs> and and. Uh, Angel did kind of the same. She kind of did some backtracking yeah. from, from the introduction. I've been guilty. <laughs> I readily confess. But, but, but part of it is when they're talking to an audience, mm-hmm. and, and Angel came right out and said that when they're talking to an audience, they're tailoring the discussion to the audience. To dialogue, right. right. Yeah. yeah. Which is which is what? Which is want. fine. Yeah. But when she writes in the when she writes in the introduction, she's not terrible, and she doesn't seem like she's tailoring it to anybody. But I kind of appreciate their presentation that way because I I would want the the undiluted. I want to know what how they came through the experiences they lived with. You know, lay it out there for me. I I want that undiluted. So I can appreciate why they would uh, have a uh, a different demeanor right there in the community with people. But in terms of putting it in a book, I really want that rawness. So to, for my understanding, because I want to, to really kind of enter into that space with them. And if they sugarcoat it, then I'm not getting the real thing. I'm, Getting something else that's been censored for my sensitivities, and I don't want that. If if I do, uh, uh, it makes me feel uncomfortable. Okay, I'll 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 deal with that. But tell me like it is what what you felt and what you feel to this day going through that those experiences, and it, it's helpful to me in terms of thing like, things like whiteness and white privilege. You know, I was a bit of a rabble rouser in my youth, but I came to recognize thanks to this book. You know, I realized, you know, I was a little more of a rabble rouser because of my whiteness. You know, if I had been black, would I have been the same type of person at that stage? Maybe not, because I would have felt there would have been more serious repercussions. I was sheltered by my whiteness. 
And that was something that, you know, I certainly would have never reflected on that without this kind of triggering. But because of this, I came to that understanding and it seemed all of a sudden quite clear to me because I could enter into their experience, into their skin, so to speak, and see what that would be like for them or reading a book like Cats. These are ways to really make it real so that it can be embodied for me, that I can come to embody it, put myself in in what they went through. For, for me, yeah. Yeah, one of the things that I guess the stuff for me is that I've seen everything from here, credit. I'm aware that they've written all that from their karma, right? Collective right. karma, individual karma. Yeah. My reaction to it is my karma, collective right. karma and individual karma. So for me, it's like I, I don't know everything that they think to to write that. And I guess I, I try to, again, like turn the light inward and reflect on my own like karma and what, what my reactions are telling me about right, what I'm bringing to it. Like we chant the Heart Sutra and, you know, form of emptiness, emptiness is form. We bring all of that to it. They're right. bringing their things to it. We're bringing our things to that. Um, you know, so I'm trying to reflect less on what their motives are and what they're trying to do and then for us what my reaction is to it and investing yeah. in that. But that's how I think. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. ultimately, I mean, that's what all we can do. Because <laughs> we we can open ourselves to what they're uh, laying out for us, but it's still coming in through intersecting with our karma as you put it and uh, and that's what's shaping our response our energies to get created so, yeah. the other thing and maybe this uh, I didn't get a chance to reread this part tonight um, and maybe it's maybe I'm reflecting on stuff that's later in the book I don't know but the the thing that seems to be left out in all of this is all three of them, the message that I got from them was, was to say, in, in terms of looking at our sangha, what does the whiteness of our sangha, how does that interact with them if they come to us? If, and you know, is um, I, I I would really be interested in knowing. That this has made me this and cast have made me question. You know what? What are Zen groups? There's got to be Zen groups in Africa too. What 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 are they like? What how do they operate? Yeah. Um, one of the one of the things that made me think about that was I was reading a cast today. She made the comment, Elizabeth Wilkerson makes this comment, there's no black people in Africa. Right. <laughs> there's no black people in Africa. They don't think of themselves as black. <laughs> whoever they are, from wherever they are, whatever tribe, they don't think of themselves as black. Yeah. That's, that's purely a, a, a construct for us. But from my own experience, the same is true for white people where I come from. Mm -hmm. We didn't have any black people in our schools. Right. 
there was no discussion of black and white. Right. There was, I mean, I, I grew up, I grew up in a rural school where there were black people in Meadville, but there weren't anywhere I went to school. So there was there was no reason to have an issue of, of black and white. And and quite honestly, from my perspective as a therapist. It's the tendency to try to draw lines and, and categorize everything that creates the foundation for conflict. Mm -hmm. Now, when I have, when I'm with a black friend, and I have black, I do have black friends, I really do. Uh, one of them is a guy who grew up in Cambridge Springs, which is the next school district over, who was, I think, the only black family in that school, and. Uh, and also went to our church, the church that I grew up in. But um, when I first met him, of course, I noticed he was black. You know, when I first met you, I noticed you had white hair. <laughs> you know, when I first met you know anybody, I noticed their physical appearance. That's all you got when you meet somebody for the first time. All you've got is what they look like, mm -hmm. and you go from there. But I spend very little time when I'm with him thinking about him being black. You know, it doesn't, it's not, it's not a, 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 an issue to me. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, he, 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 he's a person. He's who he, you know, and some people get offended by it. Some black people get offended by that. And I, I went to school, and I started my college career at Malone College down in Canton, Ohio, mm -hmm. when it was Malone College. I was just down there. Last week, we took a walk around. Most of Malone College wasn't there when I was there. <laughs> Exploded. But anyways, um, there was a, 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 a gentleman, I remember his name, his name was William A. Pennell. He was a black man who came in to give a, 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 a Presentation in our, our chapel services, which weren't really church, they were like assemblies. Sometimes they would come to church, you know, most of the time they used assemblies. And, um, and afterwards, he had a, a, uh, a meeting with, uh, you know, whoever wanted to come, you know, in the evening, he had a little talk. And um, he said something, I was one of the few white people that showed up for him. Most people there were black. Uh, which I thought was kind of sad, but uh, <clears throat> he said something to the effect of first they took away, how did he put it? I can't remember how he put it, but the, the second part of it was not, uh, he was referring to people saying, Well, I don't see black and white. He says, Well, now they want to take away our color. Now they want to take away our race. It's like, what do you want us to do? You know, mm -hmm. I mean, white people, a goodly number of them, have realized that there's a problem, but, and they're hearing lots of complaints, but they're not hearing where we go with this. And I know as a therapist that sitting and looking at what's wrong is not going to get you anywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, as I said before, my, my, uh, my mentor used to refer to that as stirring shit. Because that's all you're doing. If you just let people sit and snipe at each other, you know, hour after, you know, session after session, hour after hour, 
that's all that's ever going to get done. Mm -hmm. At some point, you have to put that back and say, okay, where do, where do, where do we want to go? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the mindset that I'm coming from when I read this, because I keep waiting for where do you want to go? Mm -hmm. No, we can sit and, we can sit and Why do you think they should tell you that? Because they're the ones who know. I know they are. They are. What they are saying is, this is our experience. This is where we've come from. They're asking for dialogue. That's what they repeatedly talk about is, I, 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 they don't have the answer anymore than you do or I do. The answer is going to be worked out between all of us eventually, if it ever is. It's being worked out. It's not well, moving very fast. What I hear is things aren't moving fast enough. That's true. I mean, I would, I would agree with that. I mean, I, I, I to be honest with you, when, when Barack Obama was elected president, I was under the impression that at least in the political system, you know, Racism wasn't a big issue. And when I heard the way the Republicans responded to that man when he was elected, I was shocked. I was like, you know, the, the things they said were just appalling. And uh, uh, so things aren't moving fast enough. But what do you do with that? The fact of the matter is maybe it just has to move slow. Maybe that's just it. And, and of course, dialogue is always a good thing. I don't think there's ever been a lack of dialogue. I mean, in my life, of course, maybe I put myself in that position to be parts of those dialogues. If, but if you think there hasn't been, a, if you think there's always been a lack, of, I mean, if you think there's always been dialogue, you ought to read the. Um, Cast? Cast, yes. Read cast. There was no dialogue in the beginning. Right. Black people were just slaves. Yeah. They had no, I mean, I read a wonderful story in there today about a black man who named his daughter Miss. Miss. <laughs> <laughs> what was her name? Miss. And you know why? Why? Because if you were a slave, you couldn't be called Miss or Mister, you were called by your first name. Yeah. Well, her first name was Miss. <laughs> so, <laughs> and it gave her principal apparently. Hated <laughs> it's a wonderful story. What kind of name I, is that? I love this not guy. Your name. I, I love this guy. He just <laughs> waited for it to happen. But I think that I think that <laughs> what what I'm made. I don't. Maybe I'm not understanding you correctly, but. My perception of what you're saying almost implies that from the very beginning, all white people accepted slavery as, as no, not all white and that's people. never no. been the case. No, no. There's always been dialogue. There's always been people saying, wait a minute, I'm not sure this is the right thing to be doing. Right. There's yeah. always well, been that. But and that's all, but that's all white people. <laughs> I mean, well, what, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I mean I, I'm sure that you talk to. Well, well, I don't know. People, if you talk because... to people who were slaves, depending on how traumatized they were, they know, some of them may have bought into it, unfortunately. Yeah. It's more about, like, I mean, some of this gets more into like the power structure and what's legally established and not yeah. necessarily yeah. the last stuff. Because I mean, yeah. you know, always 
is, you know, it streams on one side or other, but it's, it's more of the power structures that get created then, or that get, you know, beyond individual and collective, then that's something you can uh, answer tonight. But it, it's, you know, part of it is you know, not the individuals, but the power structures that get created and whether or not, like, how we're interfacing with us. Because unfortunately, unfortunately, we have to. Or, or fortunately, we have to get up off our cushions at some point, go out into the world, and participate. And it's an end in that participation, right? That we're bringing some point of view or some action. Right. Right. That interfaces something yeah. that gets complex. And and right. the term equality, which uh, Jerry Butler is using a lot in terms of of the global, uh, that the two are, are deeply intertwined, and it's. It's this matter of equality that, that gets to the heart of it, I think. And the power structures that, that Paul's talking about is, is, is uh, the driver behind inequality. They're create, it's created by inequality and it supports that, the continuation of that inequality. So that's the force that you're running into against dialogue against having open uh, uh, heartfelt discussions about it is is just that. So I think in terms of it, from a broad brush of, of what's to be done, that's why the, the term equality is so central, I, I think, is because that really gets to the heart of it. Is that a until everybody is treated equally, then the, then we're we're not functioning as as a just society, and we're also robbing ourselves. We're not really a, a fully functional society. You know, but the question becomes: How do you bring that about? And that's. That's kind of, there's no one path to that, but I think, and, and I don't know that it was ever seen as, as that. There are steps you take. Going back to the Emancipation Proclamation is one step to, to the, the attempts through uh, and the, the Voting Rights Act. And the, the busing uh, thing was, was an attempt to actually bring equality into the uh, field of education. But also you've got all these steps, measures taken, uh, Head Start programs, trying to give young uh, preschool kids uh, some measure of equality with those that are born into uh, uh, better circumstances. Uh, but I think all this, the steps that are taken uh, in our engagement with the world, uh, the most impactful thing we can do is moving to, towards greater and greater equality, which is challenging for us in this time because actually we're, we're in a, a space where there's increasing inequality and the forces that want to support that, that that's working pretty well for a, a very small percentage of the population, but it nonetheless works pretty well. So that's why I mentioned in, in the very beginning of this, when we entered into this book, 
uh, to keep in mind that the words that we're going to keep coming back to are, are uh, freedom and equality. <laughs> because they, they are pitted against each other. Yet we're talking about liberation here, another word for freedom, as being linked with equality. So I think this is one of the things that Dharma can really contribute to the political dialogue is to, to show this union of, of, of freedom and equality. Because in, in the, uh, the worldly uh, scheme of things and the way neoliberals approach it, freedom is, is the ticket. Equality actually is seen as, as, as a fiction. And I brought in a, a month or two ago that George Will editorial about meritocracy. What do you mean equality? <laughs> Everybody gets their just desserts, basically. You know, if you want, if you want to uh, uh, be treated better, you know, work at it. Work at it. Well, I guess that, that comes down to the question of what do you mean by equality? Well, and we're gonna at this stage we, we need to log out here. It's almost 9 30, so we're gonna chant out. So keeps for my sake. <laughs> there we go. I vow to myself and to each of you. To commit myself daily to the healing of our world and the welfare of all beings, to live on earth more lightly and less violently in the food, products, and energy I consume, to draw strength and guidance from the living earth, the ancestors, the future generations, and my brothers and sisters of all species, to support others in our work for the world and to ask for help when I need it, to pursue a daily practice that clarifies my mind, strengthens my heart, and supports me in observing these vows. Good night, everybody.